Hello, Health Affairs listeners. I wanted to take a brief moment to talk about the Health Affairs Insider Program. Insiders get exclusive insights and access into the sharpest minds in healthcare research through our virtual events and newsletter programs. To celebrate our second year of running our Insider Program, enjoy $40 off of an Insider membership with the discount code INSIDER at 2 at checkout. In 2024, we secured a suite of health policy experts to unpack the uh, most pressing developments in healthcare with specialized newsletters on antitrust, drug pricing, uh, health policy reform and developments, healthcare spending and prices, and health equity. Uh, Make sure you check those out. Check the show notes and use discount code INSIDER at 2 to become a member today. Hello, and welcome to A Health Policy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. More than 40% of Medicare enrollees are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans, privately sponsored health plans that provide Medicare benefits, often along with other benefits not included in the standard Medicare package, such as eye exams, hearing aids, and dental coverage. Medicare Advantage, or MA, is growing rapidly. On the current trajectory, it's likely that the majority of Medicare enrollees will be in MA plans within a year or two. Now, since Medicare Advantage plans are paid on a capitated basis, they have a financial incentive to control healthcare costs. Recently, much attention has been focused on how addressing social needs can yield health benefits, which can save MA plans money. But in order to address those needs, plans need to know the social needs of their enrollees. Understanding the unmet social needs of Medicare enrollees is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm here with Brian Powers, Deputy Chief Medical Officer at Humana, one of the country's largest providers of Medicare Advantage plans. Dr. Powers and colleagues published a paper in the April 2022 issue of Health Affairs assessing the health-related social needs of enrollees in Humana's Medicare Advantage plans. They found significant needs, including financial strain, food and utility insecurity, poor housing quality, and unreliable transportation. And these needs were distributed unevenly across enrollee demographics. We'll discuss these findings and more in today's episode. Dr. Powers, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Alan. It's nice to have an opportunity to talk with you, not just about this paper's findings, but the broader issues at stake. Let's start, though, with the motivation for the paper. Your paper examines what you called health-related social needs of Medicare Advantage enrollees. So what are these needs, and why did you select these as the ones for the focus of study? Yeah, so we were specifically interested in looking at the social needs that are most directly related to the health outcomes uh, that our members experience. And the specific needs we focused in on are a subset of the needs identified by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So one of the alternative payment models coming out of the CMS Innovation Center, or CMMI, uh, focused on identifying screening and referring around health-related social needs. And in that process, they developed a screening instrument called the Accountable Health Communities Screening Instrument. And a lot of work went into that to developing that screening instrument. 
the team at CMMI, a lot of stakeholder interviews, looked at other screening instruments out there, and really tried to compile a list of the you know, 10 to 15 health-related social needs that are most relevant in a Medicare and a Medicaid population, and also screening instruments that have the are most well-validated and have the best evidence behind them. So we uh, did not make an effort to uh, reinvent the wheel and took advantage of that great work by CMS, and generally speaking, try to align what we do with the work of CMS and so use that screening instrument as our starting point. From there, we narrowed it down a little bit to those needs that are most relevant to a, a Medicare population in this case versus maybe a ma Medicaid population, and then also made a few tweaks so that we would focus on the needs that were most appropriate and relevant to ask over the phone or online. So this was a digital survey. Certain things around safety are more challenging to ask in that setting because we didn't really have a way to respond to to those answers. So we narrowed down to ultimately seven different health-related social needs, and I'll run through them quickly just for the, for the audience. Uh, financial strain, food insecurity, loneliness or social isolation, housing insecurity, poor housing quality, utility insecurity, and unreliable transportation. That's a really important list of potential barriers to uh, good health in the broadest sense of the word. Uh, we've heard a lot about hospitals and health systems trying to collect data on these needs and trying to meet them. But you're a health plan and people's interactions with health plan are really different than with their doctor or with a hospital. So why is it important for you at the health plan level to understand these needs? Yeah, so I think you know, ultimately our North Star as a health plan is to improve the health and well-being of our members. And um, for the same reasons that you see provider organizations and others and policymakers interested in this space is that we know that so much of what determines health outcomes for individuals are not is not just what happens within the walls of, a, of an office or um, within the traditional healthcare system. And so to us, it's not possible. We don't think we can fully improve the health and well-being of our members if we don't um, understand and address the broader context within which they live. And this is one part of that, but one large part of that. So how do we better understand and address those health-related social needs that mediate access with the health system, mediate outcomes after engaging with the health system, and then certainly directly mediate health outcomes in and of themselves? Yeah, so I was thinking about this. It's great for you to have these data, but as you noted in describing that there are certain questions that are more appropriate in this format than others, this gives you sort of population level data. It gives you a, a sense of the percentage of people who have a certain barrier. At the end of the day, if you want to address my social need barriers, you need to know it about me as an enrollee, not that 33% of people like me have that barrier. So how does this data collection intersect with or overlap with or complement other mechanisms that you have for knowing what the unmet social needs are of your enrollees? So yeah, it is, it's a great question. And maybe I'll mention a little bit about how this survey and how these, these data came to be. And so this was, this was first and foremost uh, you know, operational exercise for, for our plan. We didn't set out to do a research study. We set out to understand the health-related social needs of our members so that we could directly influence our our operation and partnerships. And the goal was really to get a sense both at the individual level, but also the population level. So for the results from these surveys, so we surveyed about 100,000 of our members. So certainly not, uh, that's a smallish subset of our 4.5 million Medicare Advantage members. And so one takeaway are those population level estimates that you mentioned, general prevalence estimates for certain needs. That for us as a plan helps us understand you know, what needs are most prevalent, maybe where should we direct more more energy. But to your point, we also want to know for an individual member, what are their health-related social needs? And the way that we think about that is it's a hierarchy of data. So in a perfect world, we'd have self-reported health-related social need data on all our members. That's 
sort of undeniably the gold standard. There are clear challenges in collecting that from everyone. And we know that to some degree, those needs fluctuate over time. And so even if you could survey everyone and get an answer from everyone, uh, you would need to resurvey on some cadence. And so what we do is establish a hierarchy. So for those individuals for whom we have self-reported health-related social needs data, that's now about 25% of our members. uh, We've collected that data, at least on one health-related social need. We place a priority on that. That's sort of top of the hierarchy. Moving down, we've actually used the data from individual responses to this survey to, to build predictive analytics and predictive models to better estimate an individual's health-related social needs. Uh, to us, that's an improvement over kind of what's third in the hierarchy, which is community-level estimates. And those are, are very helpful. They're very widespread. They're publicly available. Uh, things like the Area Deprivation Index or the Social Vulnerability Index that you use largely census-level data down to a pretty granular uh, census block group level, but it's still a community level estimate. And so there's data that we've uh, analyzed ourselves and and data that's been published elsewhere that those correlate to some degree, but not amazingly with individual uh, health-related social needs. We, the predictive models are an interesting option because it kind of splits the difference. You can use data that you collect from a sample of our members and then better predict their individual health-related social needs to an extent that's a little stronger than what we could get from the community level data, but it ultimately becomes a hierarchy. And then you know, in, thinking into the future, uh, there's not great use of Z codes, which are sort of ICD codes for health-related social needs. Uh, we are working with providers to try to increase their use, um, and, and many others are as well. If there's a world where that becomes more prevalent, that's certainly something else that could enter into the hierarchy. Um, and so ultimately, it's trying to triangulate a little bit about, for an individual member, what is the best piece of data that we have? And as you mentioned at the outset, um, this is not we're not viewing this as supplanting any work that providers uh, and others are doing, other community organizations are doing. And so certainly working hard on the interoperability and data sharing front so that if other groups are collecting this data, that can be shared back with us to some degree, and then vice versa. How do we share that back with them? That's really interesting. And it reminds me, I mean, in medicine as well, you're looking for individual level data, but if you have population data that's predictive, you want to use that as well. So you're in essence doing the exact same thing here. You know, we've uh, done a lot of setup, but I do want to get to the results before we let much more time go by. So you find a high burden of needs and significant disparities uh, along various dimensions. Uh, If someone wants all the detail, they're going to need to read the paper. But why don't you give us a top line? What kind of needs did you see? And what were some of the dimensions along which you saw disparities? Yeah, so I I think you highlighted the two key findings. One is that health-related social needs are common in older adults enrolled in Medicare Advantage, and that there are significant disparities uh, along member characteristics and demographics. So to take the first one, at a high level, uh, 49% of the respondents to the survey reported at least one of those seven health-related social needs. And among those that reported one or more, uh, the majority had had greater than one. And so that you also find a, high, a relatively high level of concentration among those that are experiencing some level of health-related social needs. Three most common, there were sort of three that, that moved to the front in terms of the highest prevalence. Uh, by far the most common was financial strain, with about 33% of total respondents reporting financial strain. Uh, food insecurity was next at about 18%, and then poor housing quality at 17%. Um, I'd say, interestingly, uh, the least prevalent in our uh, analysis was loneliness and social isolation at about 5%. One thing to note there in more detail in the paper is that some of this comes down to how that um, the, the wording of the question. And so 
the specific instrument we used for loneliness that's used in that accountable health community survey is a little different than some of the other ones that have been used in the literature. So something to keep in mind, I think, generally when looking at these data is the prevalence is certainly uh, sensitive to the way the question is worded and different instruments may yield different results. And then can you say a little bit about some of the dimensions where you saw variation? Yes, absolutely. Uh, So pretty stark disparities across a number of the different dimensions we looked at. So I think I'll highlight maybe two uh, around race and around socioeconomic status. So for race, we looked specifically at black-white disparities given some of the limitations and accuracy of, of race data from CMS. So that's why our analysis was limited to that specific disparity. And across all seven health-related social needs that we looked at, we saw significant black-white disparities. Most striking and the the widest was in food insecurity, where the prevalence of food insecurity among black beneficiaries was 32% compared to 15% for for white beneficiaries. So a, a doubling, more than a doubling. I'd say there was even sort of stronger associations between health-related social needs and so markers of socioeconomic status. So we specifically looked at individuals who were eligible for uh, low-income subsidy in their Part D plan, uh, and then also individuals who are duly enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid. And across those two dimensions, and then across all seven health-related social needs, we saw two to three times higher prevalence rates for those populations. I think um, an interesting thing to note there, though, is that while the prevalence was certainly much, much higher among dual eligible beneficiaries and those eligible for a low-income subsidy, the majority of beneficiaries with health-related social needs were in neither of those groups. To us, that highlights the need to sort of balance broad-based approaches with more focused approaches. So if we're going to uh, move the needle on disparities, specifically in this case for low socioeconomic status, we have to focus in on those individuals. But at the same time, there has to be a level of breadth to our efforts around screening intervention, because if we only focus in on those individuals, we would miss you know, most um, of our members, at least, that are experiencing those needs. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up because we publish a lot of papers where dual eligibility primarily is used as an indicator of hardship, uh, low-income subsidy eligibility less so. Your data just show that although, yes, indeed, not surprisingly, those who are eligible for programs that have an income-based standard are more likely to have hardship, there's a whole lot of hardship among people who don't meet those eligibility standards. And if we sort of think uh, that everyone who's not in those programs is doing fine financially, we're making a huge mistake. Uh, And I think that's part of why we're seeing more attention paid to uh, unmet social needs by commercial plans. Historically, you'd say, oh, that's the Medicaid population, but that's just not the case anymore. This hardship is is quite broadly uh, experienced, and and we need to take that uh, breadth quite seriously. Well, uh, it's great to have these findings out in front of us. I want to talk to you more about what we do with them and what the implications are. We'll do that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Brian Powers about his paper that reports on the health-related social needs of older adults enrolled in Medicare Advantage. Before the break, we kind of got the data picture, and you see a lot of hardship out there, a lot of unmet needs. Uh, Early on, you did explain why it's important for a health plan to have this information, but that then begs the question, okay, now you have more of it, and you've explained that you have it 
at a population level, but also in many instances, you have at least estimates at an individual level. So what do you do? Uh, you want to improve health? You want to improve health outcomes? What levers does a health plan have to uh, leverage this information into something that would actually translate into better health? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm glad we can spend a lot of time uh, speaking about this. As I mentioned before the break, we conducted this uh, survey to improve our operations and the dissemination through health affairs uh, is a way to share it with, with others, but was honestly not the primary intention. And so it was always meant to inform how we how we best serve our members. And there's really a, there's a lot of different ways. I think you can honestly think about incorporating, incorporating a knowledge of these health-related social needs to almost everything that we do, but I'll, I'll highlight a couple. Um, and they're things that we focus on internally and also uh, enables partnerships externally. One that you mentioned in the intro, Alan, is around supplemental benefits and the flexibility that Medicare Advantage plans have to cover benefits that are not traditionally covered, at least in the Medicare program. And that flexibility has expanded in recent years, um, specifically around some of these health-related social needs for individuals with chronic conditions. And so we use an understanding of the absolute prevalence of some of these health-related social needs uh, and their correlation with poor outcomes to think about where we focus our efforts around innovating and testing approaches to supplemental benefits. And so I'll highlight uh, two or three uh, quickly. One is at what we call the healthy food card, uh, which is a uh, supplemental benefit that provides uh, direct financial assistance for purchasing food. Uh, and the, the hope there is that it's simultaneously addressing food insecurity, but also uh, financial insecurity. And so if individuals are forced to make choices between you know food and medicine or, or food and something else that um, we can not only, again, directly address the food insecurity, but also the financial insecurity. So that, that's one example. An example about how we use the information specifically uh, came around during COVID. And so a number of outreach programs during COVID to help make sure that the medical distancing and social distancing and other uh, impacts of the COVID uh, pandemic outside of the direct or danger from, from COVID itself was not disproportionately impacting our vulnerable beneficiaries. And so one specific focus was around meal delivery. So for individuals who we were worried wouldn't be able to um, get to the grocery store or prepare meals for themselves given uh, social distancing, we used our knowledge of their you know, existing food insecurity or potential for food insecurity to even more aggressively direct our meals assistance to those members that we felt were most likely uh, to experience food insecurity during the pandemic. Um, and then one other area to highlight is uh, value-based insurance design programs are specifically focused on addressing cost-related non-adherence. And so the most common health-related social need that, that popped out in the survey was financial insecurity. And so we know that our, our beneficiaries, many you know, seniors on fixed income, are often making you know, hard choices when it comes to, um, to their finances and that cost-related non-adherence is a large driver of non-adherence. And so we are working with, with CMS around VBIT programs that allow us to reduce cost sharing for COPD inhalers or insulin or other high cost um, essential kind of chronic medications. That's one big bucket around supplemental benefits. Maybe a, a couple other to highlight uh, quickly and then happy to go in more detail about any of them. Um, so in a large way, these data influence our partnerships with community-based programs. Um, and so the as part of our commitment to addressing health-related social needs, uh, we sort of launched what we call our bold goal, which was a goal in and of itself, which was to improve the health of the communities that we serve, but also a team within Humana that works uh, to, to establish community partnerships and to um, directly address our members' health-related social needs. And so understanding the 
the prevalence and geographic distribution of different health-related social needs allows them to be very targeted in their work with a local community organization or with some national networks that help us address some of these needs. Um, also externally, I think back to this point about who's collecting the data and how do you share it, uh, we you know do all that we can to share this back with providers. So a lot of providers are collecting this data directly, um, but it's hard to do and it takes time. And so in our existing provider uh, dashboards where we sort of share um, comorbid, you know, medical information, claims data, et cetera, back with providers. We also include this information now so that they can get a picture of their patients' health-related social needs if, they've, if they're unable to get that themselves. And then maybe the final one to mention is more on the internal side. You know, we use this directly to inform our care management program. So when we're interacting directly with our members, uh, we sort of know, first of all, we use those conversations to collect this data sometimes, but when we know something about a member, when we know a barrier they might be having, we can address that directly. So maybe a, a quick example there would be care management programs focused on post-discharge care. So that transition from an acute care setting like a hospital back into the community. Um, one thing we know is most important for our members in that case is that they see their provider shortly after that discharge. Uh, and so one thing we focus on in those post-discharge programs is, is ensuring that continuity with their community-based provider. And so knowing that a member has uh, stated they have transportation difficulties or is at risk for transportation difficulties allows our care managers to be even more proactive about you know, arranging for a transportation benefit, arranging for transportation to the clinic. Um, they'd be asking about it anyway. It's always something we ask about, but if we're primed to know that for this specific member, it's, it's of higher concern, it just allows us to be that much more effective. It's interesting, as I listen to you, my background is in Medicaid, and so much of what you've described, whether it's supplemental benefits or care coordination opportunities, is exactly uh, the evolution that Medicaid went through, let's say, 30 years ago, uh, as it moved from a fee-for-service program into using much more managed care. And of course, that's continued to grow. Um, in Medicaid, the enrollee doesn't have the option of opting out of managed care the way they do in Medicare. And so the move into managed care was, uh, in many instances, quite rapid. Here, people are voting with their own feet and their own wallets as they move from the fee-for-service program into managed care options. And setting aside the controversy over payment levels, which would take a whole other conversation, um, it does seem like a lot of what you all are doing as a managed care plan has a lot in common with what those Medicaid plans set out to do uh, quite some time ago, uh, presumably a reflection of how the levels of financial hardship, as we discussed a moment ago, are reaching up more into the middle class and are not isolated at, at the lower ends of the income scale. I am curious, I was a rather long uh, soliloquy, but I am curious whether you feel like you're learning from the Medicaid experience, whether there is a, a relationship here given some of the commonality of issues that you're trying to address. Yeah, I think absolutely. Uh, we we have more data probably on the interventions that work and don't work to address some of these health-related social needs in the Medicaid space. We I think can learn a lot from that, but certainly it's not 100% generalizable, uh, but it's certainly a place to start and, and where we, um, we, you know, we take that information. To be clear to the audience, we also have a large managed Medicaid um, organization. And so these data that we report in this study are specific to our Medicare Advantage population, but this, this process of better understanding the health-related social needs of our, our members 
and acting on them is is you know, equally prevalent um, in our in our Medicaid work. But the nature of how you act on it, there's some similarities and some differences. So there's the ability to design supplemental benefits theoretically across programs, but the way in which you can do it and the uh, flexibility that you have from a regulatory perspective changes quite a bit. And as, as you know, and as probably many listeners know with Medicaid, you're, you're dealing with 50 very different programs. Um, and then I'd say similarly, the and this comes up in the Medicare space as well, so much of this has to be tailored to the local context. And so we're, we're fortunate to be a, a large plan with lots of members and lots of places, but the way that you're going to approach um, loneliness and social isolation or food insecurity in Louisville will look very different than South Florida. And that's why that work of our bold goal team is so essential. It's very local and very kind of market-based. It's There's a centralized infrastructure, certainly to set up things around data and large national partnerships, but so much of the work is getting to know the local communities. And if we want to move the needle on food insecurity in this community, who do we partner with? Dr. Powers, I really appreciate the research that we were able to publish, you're sharing some of your own thoughts about what you can do with this. Uh, thank you so much for being my guest on Health Policy. Yeah, thank you so much for featuring our work and for having me on the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about a health policy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Podacy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening. <laughs>